and welcome to the 47th episode of Total Pop Mode, your weekly comedy gaming podcast. My name is Will, and I also go by Hoodafunk, and I'm joined here by my good friend, co-host, and fellow gaming enthusiast, James. What's going on, you cold calculating cults? Coming up this episode, we've got our weekly regular games catch-up, followed by the weekly news, including news of a new Pokemon release, controversy in the fighting game scene, and the latest news in blockchain gaming. But before all of that, let's crack on with the socials. You can, as always, find the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much anywhere else you get your podcasts by searching for Total Pop Mode. We also post regular video content of our playthrough stream highlights as well as the podcast on our YouTube channel, Total Pod Mode. You can also find us on Twitter by searching for at Total Pop Mode, all one word. And whilst you're there, you can find me at Mr. Bames, and I'm also on Twitch under twitch.tv forward slash Mr. Bames underscore TPF. And you can find me at Hoodafunk on Twitter, and I'm also on Twitch under twitch.tv forward slash Hoodafunk. So James, much like last week's episode, however the roles are reversed this time, I actually have had very little time to uh, play games outside of the Completionist Corner this week. So I'm going to hand this one over to you, buddy. What have you been playing this week? Well, don't worry, fam. I got you this week. Obviously, last week I had nothing to talk about. This week I have many things to talk about. Very good. Very good. combination of things is leading to this first of all steam sale always helps yeah a couple of games in so we'll start there i think i picked myself up a few choice pieces i'll talk about two mainly because they're the ones i've played we'll start off with the short one i picked up tekken 7 in all its glory okay um and uh, i'm not very good at tekken games the last one i played it to any sort of degree was probably tekken 4 which was years and years and years ago I've always felt like Tekken is on the scale of being the harder to get to grips with fighting games, definitely. I certainly think with the more recent releases, I don't know so much with the older ones. I haven't played enough fighting games to really sort of judge that. And obviously back in the day, there were a lot less combinations, a lot less moves. So there was a bit, little bit fewer moving parts to play with. But this this one's very hard. I turned off all the assists and all that good stuff because you want to learn how to play the game properly, right? Yeah, agreed. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm not very good. Uh, so <laughs> I've got a lot of work to do there, but I've must say i've played it for about four hours and three and a half of those hours have actually been on tekken bowling oh right so this is like a a bonus mode in the game does this kind of replace tekken volleyball uh i don't know about replacing because i don't know if volleyball actually made it past tekken 3 to be perfectly honest with you i think that a lot of the games kind of had uh some sort of bonus mode attached to them though didn't they some sort of variant on a bonus mode i guess they've gone with bowling this time well again i don't because i haven't played many i don't recall tekken 4 having one although they might have done tekken tag 1 had bowling Oh, right. Okay. So that's okay. why when I saw like this, and I think it's one of the DLCs because I got the deluxe balls out all season passy edition. It loaded, you know how it gives you like, you've now unlocked this, 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 this. And it did it for like 500 items because of all the customization <laughs> stuff. It was really long, actually. You love to see it when that happens. Exactly. But then you open it and it's like, uh, you have unlocked Tekken Ultimate Bowling. And I was like, oh, I didn't know this was a thing. <laughs> Uh, so that's <laughs> basically all I've done. I'm trying to get a score with every single character so far to see who, who's good. Because I, I used to love the Tekken Bowling back in Tekken Tag. I played that more of that than I right. did Tekken Tag as well. So. <laughs> right, okay, okay. I take it, you know, I was going to ask, is the bowling game good? It sounds like you kind of answered that by oh, the amount wicked. of time that you've played it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's fucking awesome, mate. And everyone's different. They've all got different strengths and weaknesses. And it's just really good. Different ones got better curveballs and things like that. Basically, it's only two stats, power and spin. But it goes from rank right. D to S plus on all of them yeah it's just been really fun 
just a little bit of nostalgia because of tech and tag also just fun but that's really all there is to say because i haven't done much fighting at all i think i've done maybe six chapters of the main story which is all just like talking about the lore of tech and in general so i've just been using heihachi and kazura to do a few bits basically fine and that campaign mode how is it delivered is there any sort of adventure mode style thing where you have to progress across a level or is it more just arcade mode fight after arcade mode fight with cutscenes chucked in between? Basically that, yeah. It's There's a bit right. of story wrapped around it. There's nothing you need to do outside of the fighting. Nah, not so far anyway. Okay, yeah, fine. Yeah, it is still early days as yeah. well. I'm wondering if at some point in the game you actually get to pick which character you fight against in the adventure mode. I don't think you'd ever get to pick which character you fight against. I don't know if that's ever been a thing, but certainly it's not like the old adventure modes where you'd pick a character, run through everyone and do their story, at least seemingly so far. There are character episodes outside of the main story, which is probably more that. Okay. But I haven't done one of them yet, and you unlock them sort of as you go. But the actual main campaign bit is telling the story of the Mishima Zaibatsu and all of that good tech and law stuff the war on the world Jin being a devil kazuya being a devil Heihachi being an evil old bastard you know it's just it's that sort of thing I, my knowledge on that side of tekken is actually really quite limited but as you know james i've actually picked this one up on your say so just before the pod so not only am i looking forward to playing the bowling mode obviously i'm actually very much kind of having a bit of a refresher because the last tekken game that i've properly played is tekken 3 so it's been many years since I've settled down to play a proper Tekken game. Many years since I've owned a Tekken game. So yeah, I'm looking forward to getting a bit of a refresher there as well. You'll certainly get that because the Tekken 7 has all of the cinema videos from all of the games, as far as I can see. So you want a proper refresher, you can see that. It's great. That is really cool. That's really cool. I'll get loads of nostalgia there, I think. You have to unlock most of them though by paying stuff. In-game currency. Oh, okay, fine. Okay, in-game currency. Good, good, good. But it's like, <laughs> if you play the bowling, you get like 300,000 in-game currency for a sh- round. So What's the uh, in-game currency called? Is it Iron Fist Coins? I think or? it's gold. Oh, it's just gold, I is it? I think so. Ah, oh, fair enough. Yeah. yeah. Uninspired, Namco. Very uninspired. But yeah, to my shame, the Tekken experience has mainly been the bowling so far. So there you go. But I also picked myself up South Park, The Stick of Truth and The Fractured But Whole. Oh, okay. So you got the full collection. And I got some DLC, possibly for both, I think, uh, just because it was, I think I paid 20 quid for both of them. And I've been playing a bit of The Stick of Truth this week uh, and I am probably two thirds of the way through the game. Quite short. You know, there's, uh, for those that don't know, it's a turn-based RPG style game uh, set in the universe of South Park. And it's very funny. It's very well written. Uh, it's, uh, you know, quite inappropriate. However, in order to get it released on console, they still had to censor a few of the scenes. I'd be interested to see if they've kept any of the scenes or altered them since the release. Well, do you know any of the examples of that? And I can tell you if I've seen it so far, because I, I don't know. So far, I don't recall. I haven't seen anything that wasn't in the Xbox version that I recall, at least. So have you got to the bit where you get abducted yes. onto the alien spaceship? Yeah. And what happened that. when you got anal probed? Uh, I did a sort of quick time event and eventually uh, it broke off in my ass. Jesus! Jesus Christ! Oh, can we try the big silver one again? Yeah, so on the original console version, that scene was quite heavily censored and I think it kind of cuts away to a screen saying we had to censor this and there's like a sad animal looking at the, I think it's like a kitten or something. And you know, and I did a whole procedure where, you know, I gave Randy an abortion. Yeah, again, that was another heavily censored scene in the original release of the game as well. Uh, And yeah, you know, there's things like uh, you open some random doors and you see like a guy jacking off or you see like a naked girl, there's a guy f***ing a horse. Um, 
I'm not sure that stuff. I think that was probably censored in the Xbox version, but you see all of that in its full glory in this. I only remember those two scenes, the abduction and the abortion, I think, were the two ones that really triggered people. But uh, yeah, I think the horse f***ing was a-okay. Yeah, there you go. Um, But no, so that's been quite a nice little romp down memory lane with that. As I say, I've been hankering to play them for quite some time, but uh, finally they were cheap enough where I thought I'd purchase them, and uh, I now have them both with uh, all DLCs in tow. So good times. Nice, nice. Do you have a title of which those you prefer? I think I'd like to play The Fractured Butthole one more time before I make that choice, but when I played them both initially, I remember thinking Stick of Truth was better, and I think I will probably still have that opinion, because I prefer the style of combat. Yes, agreed. Because it moves more towards a sort of XCOM-style grid placement RPG in Fractured Butthole as opposed to just the turn-based. But I'd like to play it again. It's been years since I played it, so... I'll come back to me when I've played the second one again and uh, I might change my tune, but I think probably Stick of Truth. But the main thing that I really wanted to talk about this week, as I sort of intimated last week, was that uh, Wolong's first DLC came out on the 29th of June, I believe. So I dusted that off this week as well. Very nice. Saying this week is being very generous. I dusted it off on Sunday. What they've done is they've just added like a chapter in um, that comprises of three main missions and four subquests. So you get seven new missions essentially, but they're not very long. In terms of game time, what does that translate to? Hard to put an exact number on it because I sort of did some grinding for one of the achievements and I was f***ing around a bit to warm up as well. But I reckon the new content all in is probably depending on how many times you need to do certain bosses and that, because one of the bosses is brutal. Right. Probably somewhere in the six to nine hour region, depending on what you're at. I think I probably did it in six or seven, if you take away all the other stuff I was doing, like grinding, as I mentioned. Yeah. Which I think if you're buying the DLC as an individual DLC for $9.99, which is what I think it is, is... Seems pretty reasonable. Uh, no, I disagree. I think it's actually quite outrageous in that instance. And I can see that's like why it's being review bombed on Steam, because it has. But if you bought the season pass, like I did, so 20 quid all in and you get all three DLCs as and when they come out, I think it's quite good value. I don't think £10 for a sort of six to nine hour DLC seems too much. I think that it's probably an increase on what we've paid in the past, but it seems in line with other gaming price increases. Maybe. You know, that's I think it's an individual basis thing. I wouldn't pay £10 for just what this was, but I'm happy. Ha- happy to have it as part of the 20 additional pounds that i paid for the season pass because you know it's going to be on sale for like four quid within a year or less yeah it will be at some point but yeah it's uh i found it really fun the whole thing i, I love wolong it's really great and it was great to sort of get back into it it was a little bit disappointing it was short in that regard because i'd have liked to have played more but what i will say is is that it's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination there's a lot of reused assets a lot of the levels are sort of copy and paste of other bits of other levels from the main game. There's only two new enemies and they're not really used that much. That's a bit of a shame. That is a bit of a shame. And three new bosses, I guess. I mean, one of them is three bosses from the original game combined into one for this. That's not enough bosses. No. And it's a shame that they're also kind of knockoff bosses yeah. as well. Yes, but the final boss of the DLC is... Uh, incredibly challenging and until i found a spell that basically makes it just obscenely simple Fine. but uh you know we're talking area of effects all over the screen homing lightning bolts that you can't really avoid it jumps away from you constantly so you have to constantly run into its attacks very difficult i died a bunch to that boss and then i found this one spell as i say did it first time without taking a hit what was the spell i couldn't tell you what it was called 
but it was like a, a rain of icicles that you can summon oh, over right, an area. Because okay. the other thing, I don't know if this is a DLC-specific thing, but an update that the game has had um, has changed how the spell casting works. Previously, you'd have to get up to a certain level of fortitude, which I believe I've mentioned is like the effect you get from the morale system in the game. Yes, yeah, yeah. We talked about that on a previous episode. We did. And uh, previously, you'd have to get to that level before you could use certain spells, whereas now you can use all the spells whenever you want, but they won't get their full effect until the fortitude level that's set. Oh, okay. That opens up a lot more viability for magic users in the game. Yeah, I, I was not using spells at all until this, and now I, I, I use this one at least quite regularly because uh, it's an ice spell, and just the nature of how my build is, like my water stat is 99, it's maxed, so I get obscene damage on ice spells. So yeah, it worked really well, but a uh, little bit disappointed that there wasn't more new stuff, but at the same time, another DLC due to drop in September, another one after that due to drop in December. I think it's going to give me enough content that it's going to be alright. Ah, okay, that's good news. And are those DLCs? DLCs coming out also included as part of your season pass thing that you got on purchase of the game. They certainly are. Awesome. Okay. But presumably it'll be another £9.99 each for people that are buying them separately. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, they can go into those ones being informed on the amount of content, I guess, on the first one and make that decision. Well, it depends. It depends if they do more for the new ones. Yeah, right? yeah, I, I don't yeah. know how it's working. But the only other thing that I'll say that was weird about this DLC, it didn't really bother me so much, but I can see why it bothered other people, is that instead of being sort of new missions after the events of the game has finished, if you see what I mean, it almost puts you sort of smack bang in the middle of the game again and just tells a different story from as part of that period. Like an alternative reality type thing, or...? No, I think an alongside reality type thing. Like a side story going on at the same time? I don't even know if it's a side story, mate. I think it's just more another battle in that campaign. Campaign. It's just told with new characters and stuff. Because the big bad was alive again. You see like a cutscene of the big bad doing something. And I was like, I fucking killed you. Why are you back in the game? So do you think that is so that if you were to pick up the game when you do buy the definitive edition of this and get all of the three DLCs, that when you play this game through, the DLC will just kind of activate as you play through the campaign and it would almost be seamless. You almost wouldn't realise that you were going into DLC because it's just built into the campaign? No, I don't think it's quite like that, but sort of. Basically, it comes as a new tab called EX1, presumably DLC2 will be EX2, yeah, etc. Yeah. So it wouldn't come as in the middle of your campaign as such, but presumably you'd unlock it at a certain point in the campaign where it would be viable, and then you could then play through it there. But... To be a conspiracy theorist, I don't necessarily believe this. It's probably content that was originally in the game but got cut because uh, release dates of uh, and, release yeah. date pressures <laughs> yeah, and things like the that. Crunch. That's probably what it is. But then you have to ask the question, why did they need another four months to release it, I guess? Hey, they took a year to polish Tears of the Kingdom. It was ready to ship, but they took a year to polish that. So four months feels like nothing. Yeah, but as I say, I don't believe that personally, but uh, that's, that's a theory that's out there. But uh, I was just happy to play Small Woe Long, if I'm honest with you. Had a really good time, was really fun, still love that game. Uh, I actually did play it a little bit more just for fun. I've started doing the New Game Plus campaign a bit. I'm horrifically overleveled for the early parts of it, but that's fine. Yeah, it's good to feel powerful going back into those games, especially if you're covering the early portions. I imagine when you were first going through that, you were challenged, so... Uh... Yeah, it must be nice to go back and whoop everyone's ass. Uh, to be fair, the, I've said it before, the very first boss of the game, uh, Phase 2, was very yeah. hard. Yeah, 
The whole game was a good challenge the first time through. New Game Plus hasn't been quite as much of a challenge because I am so buffed, but when I get to the latest stages, I think it will be a challenge again. It was great to get back into it, and I am very much looking forward to the next DLC when it comes. But uh, aside from that, mate, that is, uh, you know, I've played another couple of bits, but nothing really worth talking about. So that's probably me. Nice one, man. It sounds like you're having a really good time with Wolong. Uh, and again, it's it really is nagging at me that I should check that one out very soon. So I think it's about time that we moved on to the current gaming news. First up this week, we're hearing news about another upcoming Pokemon game planned for a summer 2023 release. That's now! Don't set your hopes too high though, this one is another mobile-only game for Android and iOS. Also, it's actually more of an app than a game, but it does fit into an ever-growing collection of apps that attempt to gamify normal human activities, making mundane tasks or boring burdens more fun. I love how you've just unpacked your whole headline there by being like, yeah, we're hearing news about a Pokemon game, but it's not a game and uh, it's on mobile, so... <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. We, nice. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. We just lead with a headline and uh, pray that no one questions it later on. <laughs> exactly. So we had Pokemon Go for walking about and exploring outdoors. Now we're going to have Pokemon Sleep, which is aimed at, you guessed it, getting a good night's sleep. Yeah, which you'd think as a Pokemon-loving insomniac would be right down my street, wouldn't you? Well, I mean, it certainly would account for a lot of the late-night hours playing Pokemon under the duvet with the goddamn Game Boy peripheral torch thing for the screen, well before the times of backlit LCD oh, screens. Yeah, I, I, I was so jealous of anyone that had one of those because I never did yeah, back Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had, to, I had to get told off because I just had my light on. Oh, right, okay, yeah. My little side lamp. We first heard about Pokemon Sleep back in 2019. However, it's been pretty much radio silence since then, until now. A YouTube video released by the official Pokemon YouTube channel on the 6th of July gives us more insight into how the app will work. Pokemon Sleep allows players to build their sleep style decks with species of Pokemon, and each species has multiple styles of sleep, represented in the form of cute images of sleeping Pokemon with the sleep style decks. Ah. Now you see that actually, I've seen the po the Pikachu sort of promo pick. It's very cute. You should see the Raichu one as well. It's he, He's got his tail buried in the ground, ground himself. Oh, nice. Players can unlock more sleep styles by sleeping more. You also get given a sleep score each time you rest and depending on the length of time slept. So I'd be shit at this game. Yeah, hell yeah. Your sleep style dex is going to be lacking in this one for sure. The game doesn't require you to be asleep all the time though, good news for you James, and you can actually make progress in the waking hours as well. Yes, that'll be mostly where I'm making my progress if I get this. Well, you're about to have a very fulfilled pet Snorlax, because during the day you can also feed your pet Snorlax, the narcoleptic Pokemon, food and berries to increase its strength. Hell yeah. The Snorlax's current level of strength is then multiplied by the player's sleep score oh, in order to determine <laughs> its overall drowsy power. Yeah. And the more drowsy power you have, the more Pokemon will be drawn to it during the sleep phase, right. helping the player to fill up their sleep style decks faster. Okay. As well as all these features, it also has the normal sleeping aid app uses, such as tracking when you fall asleep, wake up, and enter different phases of sleep throughout the night. The game will then compare the sleeping styles and assign you a sleep style, influencing the types of Pokemon that will appear during the night. So presumably I'll get shit sleep and I'll be, have, there is literally an insomniac Pokemon. Assume it, presumably I'll get that one. In that case, you're just going to be like muck or something. <laughs> it's going to be just like a pile of without any sleep. <laughs> Do we know, is this being done by Niantic? 
Uh, no, so this game was developed by Select Button Inc. It seems like Pokemon Go might have been the beginning of something where they uh, start releasing a few more lesser mainstream, more spin-off titles developed by other studios. So on to our second article of the day. Skullgirls is currently sitting on a mostly negative score on Steam right now due to a very recent update. Skullgirls is a 2D fighting game released in 2012 and developed by Reverge Labs and published by Autumn Games. On release, the game was generally met with praise for its graphics and cartoonish, hand-drawn art style, solid fun fighting mechanics, and flair of the fighters on the roster. It wasn't only met with positive reviews though, with some reviewers commenting negatively on the overtly sexualized all-female cast and focus on fetishistic outfits, as well as a relatively small roster of only eight playable characters on release. So that's the real issue. People were just complaining that there weren't enough fetishistic outfits in the game because there's only eight characters. They wanted more. They needed at least a roster of at least ten. Make it double digits. Eight characters? That's only 16 tits. That's not good enough. <laughs> that's not enough tits! <laughs> <laughs> and then there's that one guy in the back of the studio screaming <laughs> but to be fair for a fighting game uh, eight playable characters uh, is, is quite a small roster it is yeah. yeah yeah but you know at the same time made by a fairly small uh, independent studio yeah, no, exactly. sort of thing I think that it is respectable yeah. surprised at that criticism less so about the overtly sexualized themes given the topics that we'll be discussing shortly exactly. an update for the game was recently released this month which according to game director Mighty Zug better reflects our values and broad vision for Skullgirls moving forward. The update mostly focuses on altering or removing content that the studio now feels doesn't align to their current values. Some of these removals include allusions to real-world hate groups, such as removing the red armbands from the Egret soldiers in the game, and altering the heraldry for the Black Egrets organisation. <laughs> Presumably, red armbands and f***ing heraldry. Do you reckon it was a swastika? <laughs> oh, no, no, they didn't, they didn't have the swastikas. They just had the red armbands. There was no swastika on it. It was just like, it evokes too much. They didn't want to reference that too much. Bear in mind that I've been playing a game recently where there's Nazi zombie fetuses, so... <laughs> Yeah, but do you kill the Nazi zombie fetuses? Yeah, and I farted on them too. Well, there you go then, and then it's fine. As long as you're killing or farting on the Nazis, you can put Nazis in your game. Got it, yeah. But yeah. not as a playable yeah. character. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Never as a playable character. They have also altered certain overly sexualized animations and story elements in the game, stating, While Skullgirls is no stranger to characters that confidently express their sexuality, there are instances in the game where characters are fetishized and or have sexualization imposed upon them. This includes a few depictions of unwanted predatory behavior, particularly towards younger characters. They have also removed some content which was deemed to be in poor taste in terms of racial sensitivity, and some additional content has also been removed, such as a voiceover pack fight announcement voiced by the infamous Mike Zayman, perhaps related to his accusations of making inappropriate sexual comments to colleagues at Lab Zero Games, or one of his many other controversies. I actually have no idea who he is. He's had sexual assault allegations against him, and he's kind of a Holocaust denier. All-round good guy, then. Okay, got you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're a Get the here. Since the update has been released, the game has been review-bombed on Steam and is now sitting at a mostly negative rating, according to recent reviews. Although, the overall review score remains as mostly positive still. 
This sudden influx of negative reviews is a little concerning, given the changes of the game essentially result in less sexualization of characters, particularly in the younger characters, less allusions to hate groups, and removal of references made in poor taste around sensitive racial issues. But maybe that's expecting too much of a game which appeals to fans of skimpily clad, fetishized cartoon girls. Although I will caveat all of this by saying that some of this content removal does actually include paid content, and there hasn't yet been a replacement or alternative for that content which in my mind is the only defensible reason to leave a negative review there. If you've paid for content and it's been removed, then you would at least hope for some sort of alternative. I think that, again, this is just a classic case of review bombing. We've come up with various titles throughout the years that we've talked about. Well, even Wolong earlier in this very episode. People don't like something, they're just going to review bomb it now. And uh makes it hard to kind of believe reviews sometimes, but... uh yeah, absolutely. It's the way of the world now, unfortunately. I don't like it. I think it's really poor. At the same time, I do think everyone's entitled to their opinion and should be able to express it. I just think there's better ways. I'd be very interested to know just how many of the negative reviews for this game are from people who have legitimately made those purchases. Yeah. Well, it's actually currently only a couple of quid on Steam at the moment, or just a handful of dollars. So uh, I'd recommend, out of spite, that everyone listening right now pick up Skullgirls, give it a go, and uh, leave an honest opinion. Okay, man, I think it's time that we moved on to our third and final article. Sega is reportedly cooling its interest in blockchain gaming. So this is an article from BNN Bloomberg. Sega Corp, the gaming studio once regarded amongst the staunchest advocates of blockchain gaming, is pulling back from an arena devastated by the global crypto industry meltdown. The studio behind Sonic the Hedgehog and Yakuza will withhold its biggest franchises from third-party blockchain gaming projects to avoid devaluing its content, co-chief operating officer Shuji Utsumi told Bloomberg News. It's also shelving plans to develop its own games in that genre for at least now, he added. The remarks from an executive who helped launch the PlayStation at Sony Group Corp decades ago underscore a shift at the 60-year-old firm. Sega, along with the rivals like Square Enix Holdings Co. and Bandai Namco Holdings Incorporated, previously advocated using blockchain-based technology it believes can boost the appeal of its titles. I guess I can see from the short term when people were like obsessed with NFTs for like a month way back when. Yeah, I think it's been going on for a, a little longer than that, at least the build up to yeah. it. And this is something that, you know, as we know for a while now, games have had their eyes on in terms of future developments. However, you know, as this article states, it's kind of fallen out of the arse at the moment. Yeah. So there's no real scope or money to be made in this thing. So unsurprising that Sega's backing out of this. No, absolutely. However... They do plan to let external partners use lesser-known assets from Three Kingdoms and Virtual Fighter characters, for instance, for non-fungible tokens, aka NFTs, as a sort of certificate that confirms ownership of a digital asset. The company's intent to join the once red-hot NFT community, first announced in 2021, drew widespread criticism from gamers who viewed crypto technology as bad for the environment. The action in play-to-earn games is boring, Utsumi told Bloomberg News. What's the point? if the games are no fun. Fair comment. A very fair comment, given the quality of some of these blockchain-based games that I have seen on the internet. So these have been a thing that have been growing and supported by various streamers and internet personalities and being promoted as the next best thing. And they hire these large-name celebrities to promote their scheme in order to make a quick buck and get as many people to sign up as possible. All they are really is just getting people into more crypto investing because all it essentially relies on is you just playing the game and earning their digital currency and then placing 
increasing value on that. Yeah. And this is the thing. I've never understood the whole NFT thing because its whole concept is that the value is whatever you give it. And I, that just, I, it, I might be an idiot. It's, it's, it's the value of what the population gives. Yeah, them. but it's just like, that's nonsense to me. I'm sorry. I, I don't understand yeah, it. Yeah, I know. Big old scam in my opinion, but I don't understand it. It is, yeah. So. I mean, like a perfect example of this is the Paradox Metaverse video game, which just feels like an absolutely low effort game using, for the most part, stock resources. And it's been jankily combined together and slapped a BR mode into it to try and have wider appeal. It looks absolutely awful when you play it and you think, how is anyone actually playing this game and having a good time? Until you realise that no one's actually playing this game and having a good time. The only people that are saying they're playing it is the big personalities of the internet trying to promote the game and get people to actually buy into it. Rightfully so, scams like that have been discovered and covered quite extensively on YouTube as well. But good von Sega for sort of putting their foot down on it a little bit and saying, ah, we're not going to do it with our main guys. You're not getting Sonic, okay? Maybe Amy. We'll consider Amy. What kind of crazy bet is that? We're just doing it to brush away the cobwebs. Okay, man, with the news done, it's time to move on to Completionist Corner. So this week, as part of Completionist Corner, James and I decided to play Hellblade Senua's Sacrifice. Hellblade Senua's Sacrifice is a 2017 action-adventure game developed and published by Ninja Theory, a UK-based video game development studio. The game is set in a dark fantasy world inspired by Norse mythology and Celtic culture. And the game takes place in and around the real-world island of Orkney off of the north coast of Scotland. The game follows Senua, a character derived from the Celtic goddess Senuna, who was only discovered back in 2002 when an independent metal detector discovered a cache of gold and silver plaques left as offerings to her, likely crafted by a Celtic tribesperson sometime in ancient Roman Britain. Inscribed on the plaques were images and reference to the goddess Senuna, with an example reading, To the goddess Senua, Manus willingly fulfilled his vow. The official pronunciation of Senua was later corrected to Senuna. However, the creative director for Ninja Theory, Tamim Antoniades, preferred the name Senua, and so it stuck. Senua, as the main character of the game, is a Pict warrior. The Picts were a group of people who lived in northern Britain in the pre-Viking early Middle Ages. The term Pict is found in Roman sources from the end of the 3rd century and is used to describe unromanized people in northern Britain. The term is most likely to have been pejorative, emphasising their supposed barbarism in contrast to the Britons under Roman rule. Given that the Viking invasion of Britain took place around 793 to 1066 CE, what CE? CE is current era. For the last 20 odd years or more, they've been teaching current era and before current era because there has no religious predisposition really? to the naming conventions. Yeah. There you go. Okay, fair enough. And the game is based around a Pictish tribe on the north coast of Britain. It's quite likely that the Vikings and the Picts would have had quite a few dealings, and given the historic representation of Vikings, it's not entirely out of the realm's possibility that these interactions would not have been peaceful. Senua's appearance in particular, her facial war paint and braided hair clumped with lime, is based on a popular belief about the way Celtic warriors would have looked like. Senua is acted and voiced by Ninja Theory employee Melina Jurgens, who was initially used as a stand-in for the character, while the team were adjusting their motion capture techniques. She clearly nailed the informal audition though, and was eventually encouraged by Tamim Antoniades to challenge her own emotions into the context of Senua's struggle, even though she had no prior acting experience. 
So like with Perfect Dark last week, shout out to just hiring someone from inside your company to do the work. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, it works. And and I nailed it on both occasions. Yeah. I would say to the same degree, goddammit, Joanna Dark was voiced amazingly. Yes, and <laughs> uh, to be fair, the Senora character is uh, played pretty much to perfection by Miss Jurgens. So fair play to her. Absolutely. The motion capture technology in this game was clearly used to great effect. I would definitely compare it up there. Uh, in terms of other games like Death Stranding and Red Dead Redemption. Yeah, I think that's fair. Can't knock that at all. So mental health, in particular the condition of psychosis, forms a large part of the story and gameplay elements within the game. It becomes apparent early on in the game that Senora is undergoing a severe episode of psychosis, represented both visually and orally to the player as we progress through the game. Ninja Theory involved a group of mental health service users and clinical experts to support the development of the game in order to try and represent psychosis in a realistic fashion, whilst remaining respectful to people living with psychosis and addressing the modern day stigma around mental illness so this was something that you actually really pick up when you're watching the featurette after the game it's something that i would recommend uh, players of the game do check out only after you finish the game there's plenty of spoilers but they really get quite in depth in terms of some of the uh ways that they represent psychosis and hallucinations in the game some of the things like seeing fractals and kaleidoscope visions or being surrounded by darkness uh, or finding meaning in commonplace things or events that neurotypical people wouldn't notice. Uh, sort of Senua's rune puzzles where she needs to align things in a certain way to make something happen. They all fit very well in terms of the context of the gameplay and the way things are visually represented. Like when you look at something, you'll often see a light that's reflected around the screen, whereas it's only obviously coming from one source. They've obviously put some sort of kaleidoscope vision filter over the view to kind of try and represent some of those hallucinations. So with the scene set, let's begin our story. Our character, Senua, begins the game paddling a crudely made craft along a misty lake, turning into a slow-moving river lit with the scattered light of sun through the canopy of trees above. As she paddles past trees, she begins to notice mutilated bodies in the distance, hanging from trees and pikes. During this time, we can hear a slow and soothing voice in our ears, speaking to the player, acting as a sort of narrator whilst explaining Senua's story. Welcome. Safe with me. I'll be right here, nice and close, so I can speak without alerting the others. Let me tell you about Senua. Along with this voice, we can also hear several other voices in our heads, which Senua refers to as the Furies, who incessantly comment on our surroundings, sometimes even goading us and rudely pondering out loud what Senua's internal thoughts may be. Why did she do that? She shouldn't have done it. She can't go back now. <laughs> but you also do get the other side of the spectrum as well, where sometimes they'll kind of celebrate you as well. No! Fight again! Spill their blood! It's quite a juxtaposition there, because you start to sort of believe the voices when you hear the positive things, and then when they suddenly say, look behind you, and there's nothing there, that's the sort of thing that ends up catching you out with these things. Done very cleverly. These voices will stay with us for the duration of the game, with very little reprieve from their second guessing and taunts. They do come in handy sometimes, as they also vaguely suggest solutions to puzzles, or intuitively hint where you're in danger during combat. Get out of the way! 
in a very similar fashion to how Atreus does in God of War as well. And uh, I did learn that those ones were normally on point. Normally. Not not every time. Oh, really? I was told once, behind you, watch. So I parried instinctively and there was no one there. Literally no one there. It's an interesting point that you mentioned parrying or blocking at this point, James, because I have a bit of a... I know, I saw your bullet point at the bottom and I can't believe it. Basically, I didn't... I, I like barely paused... I didn't pause this game. Didn't look at the controls once. The game uh, doesn't tell you ever no, what the yeah. controls are. I didn't know you could block for the whole game. Oh, oh f***ing hell, mate. Jesus. I, I spent the entire game dodging. I see. First thing I did was look at the controls, you see. Before I even got into the game, I go to the options menu to make sure the graphics are all how I want them and stuff. And it has the controls inside. So the first thing I did is bounce a right bumper, right? I was like, f*** that. We'll put it on left bumper for a start. See, I didn't even, uh, you know, I've in my mind, I'm like, I'm not thinking, oh, this is the type of game that will never tell you what to press. Sort oh, yeah. of thing. So I just, I don't look at controls before I start the game typically because I'm so used to modern games where you just, you know, it tells you at every point in the game, like, this is how you crouch. This is how you stand up after crouching. This is how you change your weapons. Man, you missed out on like the only good thing about this combat in this game, in my opinion. The parry system was pretty good. So Senora is on a quest to get to Helheim in order to rescue the soul of her dead lover, Dillian, from the goddess Hela. Along the way, defeating evil demons, perhaps even gods, and facing the extreme challenges they have set for her. Senua finally arrives at the shore and looks back on her journey so far. She's almost gripped by fear as she leaves her raft, but in an effort to steal herself and spite the cruel voices in her head, she kicks the raft away back into the water, preventing herself from having an easy retreat. The player will also notice that Senua has a sort of burlap sack attached to her waist. On closer inspection in the cutscenes, however, it appears that Senua does appear to be carrying around part of a severed human head, specifically the skull. Early on in the game, she speaks to it, asking it for guidance. And as part of her visual hallucinations and psychotic misconceptions, she appears to perceive the head in the sack to somehow be sent sometimes appearing to breathe and even whispering on occasion. Although we never get to see inside the bag, it does seem to be the, like strongly hinted that this head belongs to none other than her deceased lover Dillian. And Senua believes that by reuniting the head with Dillian's soul, it will help set his soul free from Hela's grasp. As we progress through our journey, we encounter carved lore stones at intervals which are set in the ground and inscribed with runes. When we approach the stones, they light up and the runes begin to glow. And we can expect the runes to reveal tales Senua can hear in her head of a voice telling her of old Norse tales of gods wars and Ragnarok. The mountain giants dwell in Jotunheim. The fire giants dwell in Muspelsheim. Niflheim is the world of ice and darkness. Only the dead dwell in Helheim. And that is where you must travel. The voice we can hear belongs to another character in the game called Druf. Druf was an old Irish scholar who was captured by the Northmen as a slave in their raids. On one of their raids in Orkney, he was able to escape through the ensuing confusion of fires and ran into the wilds where he met Senua. Druf is also mentally unwell and appears to be very disturbed, perhaps indeed psychotic, as a result of his past trauma. It's unclear how long they spent with each other, but it does become clear that Druf's tales of the Norse gods and ancient world had a strong effect on Senua, as her beliefs of how to save Dillian, as well as many of her hallucinations, being closely tied to Norse mythology and beasts. Senua is alone by herself in the wilds at the time she met Druf, as she was seeking to isolate herself and eventually purge what she refers to as the darkness from her mind. Senua seems to have inherited this darkness from her mother, Galena, who also suffered from severe mental illness, which eventually led to her supposed suicide. Senua perceives the darkness as a rotting dark mark that is infecting her body, starting at the fingertips of her right arm and working its way up towards her head. 
There is a mechanic in the game whereby each time you fail or are defeated, the darkness spreads further up your arm, with the game threatening that if it should reach her head, the game will be over and all progress will be lost. However, thankfully, the game is bluffing at this point, and after testing, it doesn't appear you can fail so many times that you need to start over again. Thank God. It's just in there as kind of, I guess, like invented tension sort of thing. But hey, I believed yeah. it. I took it at face value on my playthrough. I did too. So, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's in the tutorial, right? It's scary. Yeah. In order to continue her journey towards Helheim, Senua encounters Valraven, a god of illusion and keeper of the mark of Valraven, which Senua needs in order to open the gates of Helheim. In order to retrieve the mark, she must solve his illusion puzzles and defeat him, and the puzzles that Valraven has set for us are based around illusions, and Senua needs to align glowing crow symbols hovering in the air from various viewpoints to unlock doors and new routes to progress. All of this eventually leads to a confrontation with Valraven, where we dodge his attacks and defeat him with our trusty sword. So what did you make of this boss fight, James? I thought this boss fight was, um, how do I want to put this? It was quite a good test in terms of the gradient of difficulty, because up to this point, enemies have been incredibly easy, very few of them, and quite slow, and typically only attacking you one-on-one. -on -one. Yeah, so that's right. fairly yeah. easy to parry, dodge, whatever you want to do, really. And Valraven was sort of much quicker, was attacking more often, there was a lot more going on. But I did find all of his attacks very easy to telegraph. I thought they were all slow enough in the build-up that I never really got hit. I mean, I did get hit, don't get me wrong. But And uh, all of his attacks, as far as I could tell, were blockable. Right, so, which sorry, is useful for you. you. didn't know you could do. <laughs> yeah, this was my first death in the game, actually, uh, not being oh, really? uh, a blocker. I uh, I, I yeah. hit my first death in this. Do you want to know what my first death was very quickly? Go on, it's hilarious. You know, you know the tutorial before you've met an enemy at all and you're just crawling across those beams like by the waterfall? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I fell off that and that was my first death. Of the game. You can, oh my God, I didn't even know that was a thing. Yeah. Wow, okay. Yeah, because the balancing doesn't give you any directions which way to counterbalance, so I did it wrong and she just fell off. But this was before the black arm mechanic so i never got anything for it ah uh, okay okay but i did manage to pull it back and i think i got him on that second attempt he has as you say quite a few easily telegraphable attacks a lot of them aid with quite strong audible cues as well when he kind of throws his curved blades around that makes a very distinctive noise that you know to dodge for or block and his melee combos weren't particularly difficult to deal with as well, just dodging around them. They often give you large windows to follow up with attacks after that. Even though he's probably one of the faster enemies in the game, there's still plenty of windows for attacking. I would say he's uh, comfortably the fastest enemy in the game, actually. Probably, um, yeah. You know, there's uh, an enemy that comes up later that we haven't met yet called the Berserker, which is essentially him, but with less powers, which could maybe rival how quick he is. But yeah, he has attacks are much quicker than anything else you fight in the game for sure very cool design boss as well love me some bird skulls this is a freaky looking guy and uh, you actually get to see him in the run-up to the boss fight as well throughout various illusions yeah. and as you walk past he'll then suddenly disappear yeah, and effigies and stuff as well where it's like he's just sort of been there as an illusion but then there's just a wooden figure of him pointing somewhere yeah or something like that. along with some black raven feathers yes but no uh, it's a nice little test gets you into the game a bit which is good because up to this point i had found the combat quite boring so this was a nice change of pace. We'll get on to our focus ability shortly because this is something that actually gets introduced in the Valraven boss fight. I guess we may as well talk about it. Why don't you take us through how that ability works in this game? Essentially what it does is you build up a bunch of runic symbols on a sort of mirror thing that Senua is carrying on her back that you can see and you get sort of visual prompts. The screen flashes with like a blue symbol almost. That's right. I think each time it does that it tells you that you've earned a charge of your focus mode. And what focus mode then does is if you press right trigger the game basically goes slow-mo 
and it's almost like a bullet time. Yeah, that's a very good way of describing it. And you can sort of run about and enemies are slowed, but they still react kind of at a similar speed. It's a weird description because I did get hit quite a lot in focus mode thinking they'd be slower with their swings, but it's not. It's just their reactions that are slower. Yeah, they're absolutely able to yeah. to still hit you and even get hit by multiple enemies at once in some of the later sections. Yeah. It's a really useful thing. If you're getting surrounded, for example, it's very useful for just getting out of a bind, but it can also be used to slow an enemy down enough so you can run around to its weak point or run around to a bit that isn't armoured or covered by a shield and get some hits in. Very, very cool mechanic, very useful mechanic. Didn't use it as much as I should have done, to be perfectly honest with you. I had some difficult times in the game. One of my kind of issues with the combat was that I happened to get not surrounded as much as backed into a corner where the camera would be pulled in very close. Enemies would be closing in very close and it was almost impossible to see around you and predict where attacks were coming in from. So a lot of the time later on in the game, I would be reserving my focus mode to just purely get out of situations like that because that was probably one of my main kind of issues with the game was the amount of times that I got stuck in a corner and wasn't able to see the moves coming in and I was just kind of dodging and panic dodging and praying. Uh, yeah. I mean, a block would have. Yeah, it would have helped, helped so much in that. It would have helped absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. When you get blocked in yeah. and uh, you can't dodge out of the way, yeah, it would have been great to have a block. Yeah. No, see, to me, this is like on the same level as me not getting the crossbow and evil with it. It's like, <laughs> god damn, seriously. <laughs> in my defense, like I said, I don't, I don't tend to look at controls of games before I yeah. start playing, and I just immersed myself in this. I didn't pause the game hardly at all when I was playing it, so I just never saw that the controls came up. Yeah, and to be fair, the one thing about this game is that, um, which I know that you will have liked because you've said it before on the pod, you don't get items highlighted that you can interact with. There's no button prompts on the screen. There's none of that. You're literally there. It might say very rarely you have a light and heavy attack. It doesn't tell you what buttons they are. Uh, don't think it mentions at all that you have a melee attack that you can use. Uh, the kick, etc. She actually also sometimes headbutts them, which is hilarious. I like the combos in the sword game that you can bring out through varying the light and the heavy attacks. There's a particularly cool one where she kind of shoves a sword in their chest and then pulls it out with a pirouette that reminded me of the Witcher. Yeah, yeah. It was quite cool. Yeah. She does another one where if you sprint in and do a heavy attack, she does like a half somersault and hits them really hard and yeah. you can chain that together and basically stun lock enemies. It's great. I personally actually really like the way that the combat functioned in this game. I think that it didn't overstay its welcome down to the fact that the game is quite a short game but i personally found the combat quite enjoyable but i know that you're kind of differing on that opinion a bit yeah i thought it had some cool things about it but i thought on the whole the combat felt quite clunky and uh my opinion i know but i found it all it's way too easy even on like the harder difficulty setting which i did put it on for a little bit it was still weird i didn't see any difference to be perfectly honest but i don't think combat was the main focus of this game to be fair no not at all I'm sure we'll get into it a bit more later but this game was more of an experience than it was a game if that makes sense i put it sort of on the same level ish as telltale games oh i wouldn't quite go that far had more fleshed out combat don't get me wrong but in terms of the style of game i felt it was more of an interactive maybe more like death stranding if you like more of an interactive story than an actual combat game i think we kind we of never uh, we have different opinions on that as well though as to the the cut the scale of death stranding being an interactive movie versus uh like a fully fledged game as well but you see what i mean at least but absolutely i do take your yeah. point it's almost like a it's not very developed, but also it doesn't need to necessarily be, given that it's maybe six to eight hours maximum in length. If you were playing a 30-hour game, this would not do, you know? <laughs> like no, the combat, God, you no. would need something else to go on. Yeah, exactly. So having defeated Valraven and headed back to our initial sort of area where the Helheim Gate is, next on our list of bosses is Soot, a fire giant and keeper of the mark of Soot, the second piece we need to open the Helheim Gates. 
So in this next area, we need to race through several puzzles where we need to find carved devices devoted to suit that actually look like sacrificial standing stones complete with shackles. After interacting with these stones, our head is filled with visions of fire and suffering and smoke starts to fill the area, choking Senua. We need to race out of the area each time, escaping the smoke and avoiding the fire, which then opens up the way to the next area because the sort of doors are made out of wood and the fire basically burns a hole in them. Yeah, they kind of resemble like giant wicker weave yeah. doors don't they this was the second uh death of my run or a second memorable death of my run i didn't realize that the time thing wasn't just implied peril and this one was actually like <laughs> no you do need yeah. to go otherwise you will die no yeah i, I didn't die to this fire i'd add some fire later though but we get through all these trials and tribulations and eventually we encounter Sert, a giant of a man, his face covered by a flaming deer skull and wielding a large flaming greatsword. So Will, why don't you tell the people a little bit about this boss and then let me know what you thought. Yeah, so Sert, unlike Valraven, uh, is a much more slower moving boss and I typically tend to find slower moving bosses uh, a lot easier due to the fact that their abilities are much easier to telegraph. I Agreed. think in terms of the difficulty and pacing of this game, he might have actually been better placed as the first boss in the game just because he has very little tricks other than the fact that he can suddenly engulf himself in flames making it impossible to hit him two things there quickly firstly technically i think he can be the first boss in the game because you do get a choice between which door you go through first oh that's very true i forget it sounds like we both just happened to pick valraven first because i went left to right no you're, you're absolutely right yeah. and i think most people probably would go left to right as well but yeah. i had actually completely forgotten that even those two early stages of the game are non-linear in that aspect yeah um and the second thing is i think you still can hit him when he's engulfed in fire it just hurts you oh right yeah okay yeah if you keep smacking the shit out of him i think it eventually goes out uh, just because you can man doesn't mean you should aggression baby you can use your focus ability though to slow down you time can, yeah. extinguishing his flames and at that point then you can kind of lay into him until he decides to flame up again and he does have an attack i don't know if it's the same thing but he sort of um he starts charging up that's as right. if he's going to do something major and i'd never let him i never saw what happens if he gets to the end of that I just run in and wailed on his ass and that actually knocks him into a state of sort of maybe two or three seconds where he doesn't do anything and you can just wail. Yeah, using your heavy attacks in the game is pretty effective in terms of getting enemies to stagger as well and it gives you a bit of a wider opening to pack in more attacks, particularly on the bosses. Yeah, and to be honest, I almost exclusively only use strong attacks in this game. There are a couple of times where quick attacks were needed, but for the most part, strong attacks. Despite the fact that there isn't a moves list on this game, I did slowly start to figure out how to get off certain moves by varying the light and the heavies. Yeah. And particularly that stabby one I was trying to bring out quite often because it seemed yeah. to be almost a killing blow. But I, uh, I know what you mean. Those heavy attacks, and even for some enemies, they're almost the way to go. It's almost definitive that you shouldn't be doing the light attacks on certain enemies. Sounds like neither of us had too many issues with this one. No, no. After defeating Sert, we retrieve the Mark of Sert and set off to unlock the gates of Helheim, but not before being reminded via a hallucination of the time that Senora returned from the wilds to her village, to find it having been ransacked by the Northmen and her beloved Dillion murdered and made into a blood eagle. An ancient ritualistic sacrifice involving stringing someone up by their flayed backskins to appear as wings. Fatality. 
yeah brutal you actually get like a full-on visual of this as well it's quite yeah gnarly. and it's a real uh real ritualistic yeah. sacrifice that happened shout out to the vikings <laughs> <laughs> so fighting back her memories of this traumatizing event she rejects the taunting voices in her head and her vision begins to clear again now showing her about to cross the bridge to helheim senua battles her way across the bridge past a small gauntlet of demonic northmen but is stopped at the other side by the goddess hella appearing as a giant nude hairless woman with dark rot appearing to have corrupted her arm, leading up her torso and to her head. Hella prevents us from crossing the bridge and knocks Senna off it. She sort of runs towards you really menacingly. It's very suddenly, alarmingly quick for such a large figure as well. She's kind of moving fairly slowly and looming up until that point. Yeah. And then it feels a little bit like a Japanese horror movie that she suddenly just takes off and comes at you. Yeah. And it's almost like, you know, when you've cornered a spider and it looks really scared and then it runs at you. It was like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But as we say, she knocks us off the bridge and also breaks our sword in the process before we start falling and the screen fades to black. As the scene begins up again, Senua is taunting herself in the voice of one of the malicious furies that lives in her head. The shadow Look at you. A warrior. Worthless. Weak. Pathetic. Go on. Feel sorry for yourself because there is no one left to do that for you. Senua tells herself she is broken and lost and in frustration and misery, she burns herself with her broken blade and there is another fade to black. On reawakening, we see the blooded Senua rising and being guided by a glowing figure in the distance, who Senua recognises as her deceased lover Dillian. She follows the light, leading her to an ancient tree with an opening. Inside the tree, she finds a glowing blue sword named Gram buried in the central roots of the tree. She's unable to pull out this sword, much like the tale of Sword in the Stone. Loud noises and sights suddenly blind Senua and she retreats from the tree without the sword. She looks around to see blue glowing shards now surrounding the tree, acting as trials which can be completed in any order before she can retrieve the sword. Yes, I believe with the premise being that the sword is actually broken and each of these trials will help you reforge it. That's exactly right, yeah. Yeah. And these trials were a mixed bag of some quite simple puzzly sections and some really irritating getting lost sections for me at least. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so why don't we start with that one then? Let's talk about the blindness shard. Okay, so the blindness shard... Basically, each time these shards sort of teleport you to not quite another reality, but it's sort of an area around the tree, but sort of a fair distance away for you to do your trial. But this one in particular, you just end up in a completely black area, just completely dark. The only light source you have is a sort of faint glowing light around Senua herself, but you can see nothing. Apart from maybe like a foot in front of you at most. Yeah, and if you do see anything beyond that, it's, it's the most vaguest of outlines yeah. that you can amplify ever so slightly by using your focus ability to just see a little bit further. But it feels very much like the same experience of straining your eyes in the pitch dark trying to make things out. Exactly, and and the whole point with this trial is that it really wants you to actually use your ears. It needs you to listen out to where you're going. I forget who, it's either Druth's voice or Dillian's voice is helping you Dillian's through this. Dillian's voice guides I think you. it's Dillian, yeah. Yeah. He sort of says, trust your instincts, and you essentially have to at first follow the sound of flames um, before then moving from the flames to follow the sound of water. And you eventually work your way by walking upstream to find the end of the trial. There's no no fight at the end of this or anything like that. It's literally just getting yourself out of there. Yeah. And what I did is I got to the flame, no problem. And then there's three or four torches sort of kicking about the same area. And I made it to one of them. And then I got myself turned around somehow and ended up walking between the torches. Rages, and then eventually I walked back to the start of the level. <laughs> 
because I was like, right, if I can get back to the start, I can get back to where I was and be facing the right direction. You could reorient yourself a little bit there. And I did, and actually, as it goes, I didn't have to walk right back to the start. There's like a swinging brazier in the wind because, sorry, I forgot to mention you also follow wind at the very start. And I got there and was like, right, this was the end of the wind section. I can now go to the flame section. And I was able to then to get there. But man, yeah, I was probably in this for about, it should take you about five, 10 minutes. I was probably in there for 25, wow, 20, yeah. 25 minutes. Yeah. I was going to say, I don't think I spent more than about five in this one. It is, yeah. yeah, it's a very quick section if you just happen to magically go the right way. And we discussed a little bit before the podcast. I was using headphones for uh, this section of the game and in fact for the whole duration of the game and they came in very handy during this because as you say you really need to listen to your ears and any sort of precise steering that you can get from stereo audio being plugged into both ears really does help. Exactly and, and it, it's still playable using your, just your speakers as I did but I can certainly see the advantage to using headphones particularly for this section. But we made it, trial number one done, on to trial number two. So, trial number two being any of the three remaining trials left, uh, but I'm going to go ahead and pick the Tower Shard for the next one to cover. This is a puzzle where we enter into a realm that includes large models of masks in the area, and wherever we look through the masks, it sort of teleports us to the same place in some sort of different time or setting. I believe it's the past, yeah. It's the past, is it? Okay, yeah, I think yeah. so, yeah. At that point, uh, the past seems to be like a nice sunny day, and then you go back to the current time where it is a miserable grey day, where a lot of the objects in the environment have now been destroyed. Yeah. And you need to use these masks alternating between the two different times in order to navigate your way through the level, as well as opening up shortcuts and doors that persist through the time. So if you are to go into the past and open a door, it then remains open into the future and vice versa yeah basically just leading to a bunch of shortcuts allows you to knock down other shortcuts which then just make the whole thing a lot more manageable and actually gets you through it quite nicely so this was my turn to spend an inordinate amount of time on a challenge because after getting through all of the masks which i didn't find too much of a challenge i actually then found myself in the ground level of the tower looking up at a broken staircase and when i looked at this staircase i never put it together that this is the sort of puzzle where you need to stand and look at it from the right perspective so that the staircase will appear amongst the broken floating shards and then when you focus in on it the staircase all aligns and gets put together i spent a long time thinking that this had something to do with the time swap still so I walked right. around for ages. I, I must have spent, and I did actually take it out. You can go see most of my playthrough of this game, uh, either on Twitch or on YouTube. However, I did actually save the viewers the 30 minutes that I spent uh, wandering around this place looking for a solution because I was just completely lost and not getting it whatsoever. I felt like such a fool when I actually had to go on a walkthrough. I had to go on a YouTube video oh, to damn. figure this one out. Just because I was like, it was like half an hour and I was just on stream. Like, what do I do? Do I just like stop, stop the stream? Like, <laughs> Cause I'm stuck. Like I can't, I can't make people sit through this. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, I saw, I didn't luck it out. I saw the opaque kind of floaty things and I was like, okay, that's going to be something. And there were no masks in the room. Right. So I was like, okay, it can't be the masks, which obviously I can understand exactly where you went there because well, I was like, oh, well I've just unlocked a shortcut back to all of the masks. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> 
And I actually just was looking at it at near enough the right angle and I saw half of the stairs there and I moved a little bit and it was rotating slightly. I was like, okay, I need to line it up. And then I stood there for about 30 seconds like, okay, it's not doing anything. I was like, focus. Focus. Use that focus button. And luckily it did it. If it hadn't worked within five minutes though, I probably would have done the same thing you did. I think it's the sort of thing where if you're standing and you just happen to be in the right place at the right time, much as how I just miraculously wandered towards the right exit in the last puzzle, this one was a case of I never happened to stand in that spot that gave me enough of a hint I was always looking at it from obscure angles so I never saw that there was any way to line anything up for the most part those blocks in the sky just look like blocks of glass if you view them from the wrong angle yeah I can see why you got turned around there and half an hour's brutal though But anyway, we did finally pass our way through the tower shards, and I think it's time to move on to the next one. What one do you want to cover next? I'll actually pick the labyrinth shard purely because it's the first one I actually ended up doing, uh, weirdly. And this one is pretty self-explanatory, to be honest with you. You get dropped into a bunch of tunnels, and every single direction looks exactly the same. And the only way to tell where you've been and not to get confused is to light torches as you enter the new rooms. And I worked out fairly quickly that if you light a torch sometimes another torch in another room will light at the same time yes and if it does that that is not the way you're meant to go yes (laughs) right so naturally that's the way i went first every time and i'm glad i did because that actually ended up leading me to a law stone yes which i would have missed had i gone the right way first time so that was good times but to be honest eventually with this one i ended up just uh, lighting every single torch in the level and just explored the whole bit and thankfully uh, the solution to it is technically written on the floor although i couldn't really tell there's like a symbol of a tree and the way that the tree grows is actually the route that you take oh is it really see it's interesting it sounds like i figured it out a different way because i was looking at the shields on the wall as you walk through into each new room and i was noticing that the shields were repeating unless i took a certain route so i was finding the different shields knowing that i was if i was seeing new shields then i was going somewhere new and making progress Okay, you see, that's really interesting because, as I say, I didn't really use the routing. I just sort of went everywhere and eventually found the little crack under the wall that you go through and uh, escape. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it was um, this one had the potential to be another one where you could get really lost. If you, I mean, if you weren't lighting torches, I mean, geez, then you'd be here for hours. And I, I must say that I found most of the puzzles in this game cool the first time, but a lot of them are repeated, so they lose their shine a little bit. This one I actually thought was just quite a nice little puzzle. I'm totally with you, by the way, on puzzles repeating themselves uh, a little bit throughout the game is there is too many goddamn rune puzzles in this game to unlock doors where you need to keep on tracking down subliminal symbols created by everyday items whether that be through shadows or holes in the wall or just certain items standing and looking at the two of them combined from a certain perspective they will form a rune that then unlocks the door each of these doors has typically around three runes it can be one to three but yeah. typically it's two or three, yeah. It's a whole thing, and it happens a lot in the game. And I can appreciate that all of these puzzles do tie back to symptoms of psychosis or have some sort of relation in terms of you know people seeing patterns in everyday objects yeah. that others wouldn't see. But the only issue with that is that it does limit the puzzles that you're able to do. And that does become obvious as you play through the game. You are kind of completing varied, but very similar puzzles throughout. Yeah, and the shame of it is, is it began to feel like filler, for me at least. Um, Because as I say, the first couple of times was really cool. And some of them were neat. Like you have to light a certain torch, go find another way through a waterfall to then light another torch that then lights up the shadows that gives you the symbol. Some of them were great, but when it's just ones like look at these trees at a certain angle, cool the first time. I kind of more come from the perspective of because the game was so short, 
I didn't have time to get bored of the puzzles. But again, like I said, with the combat, if this game was like a 30 hour game, this would have been a real struggle to be repeating those puzzles for that long. So I personally didn't feel like this game outstayed its welcome with these elements, but that is purely because it is such a short game and the fact that I was enjoying it so much. I think I went into this game with the mindset that it was more of an action fighter game. And had I gone into it with more of the mindset of a Death Stranding, an interactive Telltale type game experience, I probably would have enjoyed it more. Yeah, fair if play. You see what I mean? So I, so I do think that there is a little bit of that at play, but yeah, you're right. I, I didn't not like this game, but I didn't enjoy it as much as you did by the sounds of it. But we'll get into all that later. Because we got one more trial to do, baby. So the fourth and final trial is the Swamp Shard, which involves puzzles where you need to align bridges using different perspectives as you walk around the level in quite a similar fashion to the way that we repaired the set of stairs in our tower puzzle shard. And uh, all of this eventually lines us up to working our way through a house where we're eventually hunted down by like a fiery red glowing light where if we look at it or come into close contact with it, it will actually kill our character. And we need to run around that house, solving another one of those rune puzzles that James and I mentioned earlier. However, this one has the added urgency of you can't just amble around looking for symbols in random knots of wood or bits of shadows. You actually need to do it very quickly as you're being chased down by this unknown entity. Yes, and this is where I got another one of my deaths. I got killed by this entity having retrieved all three symbols. Oh, that's annoying. uh, When I didn't know the way. I got cornered and it got me Uh, but I did get it second time because I I knew where to go I just was panic running but uh, it was actually uh, probably the most tense of all these shard ones because the blindness one there's no tension I just got lost right this one there was actually you know if this catches you you will die Throughout the course of the game, and in particular within each of these four trials, Senua's backstory begins to unravel, and it is revealed that her mother, Galena, suffered the same curse as Senua, but her mother actually saw it as a gift. However, Senua's devoutly religious father, Zinbel, thought that it was a curse, and gathered with the tribe to burn Galena at the stake. Senua actually witnessed the fiery death of her mother when she was just five years old, which caused her psychosis to significantly worsen, and she blocked out the memory as a defence mechanism. Yeah, so no suicide, as was uh, mentioned earlier. Yeah, that was kind of something that uh, that Zinbel had told Senua as she grew up, and I guess she'd sort of gone along with it, blocking the actual traumatic memory away. Senua's father convinced her that she was actually cursed and abused and isolated her from the rest of the world until she met Dillian when he visited her village to join the warrior trials. You should become a warrior, you know. Me? I'm Dillian. I'm here for the warrior trials. Just come and watch. And bring your swords. Soon after, they fell in love and Senua left her father to be with Dillian as he was kind and saw her as different and misunderstood instead of being tainted by a curse. However, after a plague swept through Dillian's village, Senua believed it was her fault after years of her father telling her she was cursed. So she exiled herself and left Dillian, promising to return once she had defeated the darkness. A year later, Senua returned after seemingly confronting and defeating the darkness. However, she found everyone killed by Norsemen raiders who had also blood-eagled Dillian for their gods. <laughs> yeah, it's nice to That's use a that great as sentence. blood-eagled as a verb, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. it's, it's a new That's one. That's a great sentence, yeah. <laughs> yeah, what did you do this weekend? I just blood-eagled some fools, you know. A little bit of sacrifice. Oh, mate, I got absolutely blood-eagled last weekend. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. 
But remembering the stories of Druth, Senua then swore to save Dillian's soul from the gods of the Norsemen. After completing all four trials and retrieving Gram, the glowing sword buried in the tree, Senua rallies against the influence of the darkness, surviving the sea of corpses, a vast chasm with black arms and hands stretching out to grab her, and defeating the beast Garm at the gates of Helheim. Speaking of, let's talk a little bit about the next boss fight. Yes, let's. Uh, this fight is different to the others we've fought because it's actually our first non-humanoid fight and actually i think the only non-humanoid fight in the game i believe yes i Can't think so think yeah one. no 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 and you're right and it's also a big non-humanoid fight as very well very big motherfucker this guy so the boss is called garm it's incorrectly on the steam page um for the achievement called fenrir because it is a sort of dog-like creature but it's nothing like fenrir from ragnarok so to me it also had resemblances to a boar as well I know what you mean, because it kind of has, like, tusky fangs, doesn't it? Yeah, and it um, also kind of charges you down with some of its moves, which I don't yeah. necessarily think is uh, something that wolves do. They kind of... No. They, they exactly. stalk as opposed to charge. This fight was interesting in that... Um, the whole Garm gimmick is that he controls the darkness and sort of leading up to his fight you actually have to run through sections where if you're not holding a torch or you're not in a light source he can literally get you another yeah. one of my deaths in the game the darkness can consume you yeah exactly then this was one of the ones where I did think okay that's a clear reference to the psychosis here nice but yeah this fight was cool he was quite slow moving he could attack you either by biting you with his fangs which could be blocked or using his claws which couldn't although I exclusively dodged in this fight because he's so big you can just dodge around the side of him and get a couple a strong attacks in before his next move yeah and when he gets down to a sort of um, a certain threshold of health he'll start either covering you in darkness so the whole screen becomes dark and you actually can't see him so you have to use your ears and your brain to time your dodges and then attack occasionally he'll flash back into vision but it's not enough really and the other thing he does is he'll occasionally run off screen and as will mentioned earlier he'll charge back into you um, the charge itself was easy to dodge but it sometimes had a follow-up where he'd charge on and then he'd come back and he'd sort of dive in the air and belly flop on you and uh, that attack I think it nearly killed me in one hit. I got hit by it once and I was like, okay, I'm definitely just spam dodging whenever I see him in the air because that's brutal. But on the whole, I personally didn't struggle with this fight. Again, most of his attacks were very well telegraphed and uh, just dodging strong attack. How did you find it, man? Yeah, no, pretty much the same story there. I suppose the most notable thing about this boss fight is you actually get introduced to your new array of charge attacks, which has now been given to you as Senua wields Gram. With this new sword, Senua can hold her heavy attack button, which is the one on xbox triangle on playstation god knows what on pc keyboard presumably left or right click probably yeah and at that point your sword begins to glow blue very much as frodo's sting does in the lord of the rings books or bilbo's sting does in the hobbit and at that point, she unleashes just a large, very damaging attack, which seems to do more stagger damage than normal and is particularly useful in this fight. In the darkness, certain enemies can cover themselves in sort of um, a darky, smoky type illusion thing, which makes normal attacks not work on them. Using these charge attacks dispels that smoke and you can hit them again. Also can be done by focusing on them. And the tactic that I used in this, because when you get a parry with Gram, it actually ints the charges your sword. And when you do the um, repast after you've parried, it will break their shadow shield as well right so i was using that rather than holding charge but i was using the block mechanic to very good effect to sort of cleave through enemies quite easily doing that to be honest with you that sounds like a very fun mechanic james i wish i was smart enough to use it in my playthrough what are you an idiot sandwich so with boss Garm defeated and out of the way, Senua realises that the darkness is actually a representation of her father's abuse and temporarily imprisons the Furies in the magic mirror she has been carrying with her throughout her journey. 
Senya is then able to confront Hela, who summons a never-ending army of undead Northmen warriors, all the sort of mobs that we fought throughout the game. She just chucks them at you. So basically you run across a bridge, which she then destroys, and then you get attacked by these waves. And then you run across a second bridge to get to her, and instead of waves of undead Northmen, you fight uh, shadow versions of all three bosses that you fought up to this point that can be one-on-one, two-on-one, three-on-one, or can randomly change mid-move. This was the intensest fight in the game, without a doubt, because of the fact that they're able to vary up. Sometimes it's a, a clone duo but when they started to mix it up between i think it was cert and val raven at the same time i found that quite a challenge i managed to defeat garm quickly because he was big so you could use him to sort of block off the other two yeah yeah because val raven's so quick right he was the most annoying one in this fight because he can get you from pretty much anywhere he has projectiles as well the others you can sort of use to block themselves yes yeah i actually struggled with phase one more than i struggled with phase two. Oh, okay weirdly. okay because you get a load of those big berserkery enemies coming in with shield guys, with sword guys, and it was just quite intense and a lot to take on. Whereas it sounds stupid, but with three bosses, it's quite a big arena. You can sort of get about a bit. And as I say, using Garm to block them off, I, I thought was a much easier tactic. You do get to a third phase where you're sort of next to Hela, but even then she still doesn't attack you and you just have infinite mobs spawning at this point. You can either continue to fight them until you're either finally overwhelmed or get bored and realise there's no way to win. For me, it was definitely the latter. Uh, I didn't really need to stop. I just was like, oh, okay. It really is never ending. I guess I'll just die. To be fair, at this point, I actually genuinely did get overwhelmed. I was trying. Oh, right. but, like, I did get overwhelmed. And in Senua's final moment, she recalls Dillian telling her the importance of accepting loss. As the imagery of Helheim fades away, Hela stabs Senua with Gram and drops Dillian's head into the abyss. But as the camera returns to her, Senua is standing in Hela's place with a dead Hela at her feet. Having accepted that it was never possible to bring Dillian back and that she was not responsible for his death, she manages to banish the darkness from her soul and accepts the Furies not as a curse, but as a part of who she is. But at this point, she turns to camera, she invites the player to follow her, saying that there is another story to tell as the credits begin to roll and the game ends. And it obviously leaves the door wide open for Hellblade 2, which, as a result of playing this game, I am now very much looking forward to finding out the continued adventures of Senua. Yeah, so piggybacking off that, mate, why don't you launch into your thoughts and conclusions on the game? Sounds to me like you had a, a pretty positive experience throughout. So minus ignoring Slasher not being aware of one of the most basic combat elements within the game, I actually found the combat very enjoyable. I really liked that you could get that heavy attack fully charged, and then before you would unleash it, you still had the opportunity to do your dodges left and right. And even if there was an incoming enemy attack, you could still avoid that before letting it go on them, which kind of added to the badass feel of some of the uh, of the fight scenes to me. I thought that the storyline uh, was very interesting. I've got quite an interest in mental health illnesses myself, and I found that a lot of the representations in the game lined up to experiences that I've witnessed in the past past as well as finding it very intriguing to kind of get a much more visually and orderly represented perspective which i think is very difficult to achieve in a medium outside of video games or some sort of vr immersive experience and i think that they kind of they did represent uh psychosis in a really interesting way in a way that it's never been done before and a way that actually pushes technology forward as well even in their use of things like a binaural microphone to record in 360 sound 
and then implementing that as part of a video game using voice actors to walk past this microphone leaning into it and whispering something and walking away it creates this really interesting effect where provided you are playing this game with headphones it really amplifies the the feeling of the game how much immersed you are you can find yourself becoming frustrated with the voices because they're incessant and that is something that i assume the game is intending to be a thing that you're actually frustrated with these voices because once again that just proves that you are being immersed into this psychotic breakdown of someone yeah worth noting that even without headphones those voices can go oh, yeah. still. so it still gets the same effect even without in terms of the puzzle elements of the game uh, i think we're both agreed that they get a little samey although they do fit the context of having psychosis well and for me personally seeing as the game is so short none of this ever outstays its welcome or i found particularly boring i think i found this game really really enjoyable i found myself thinking about it when i wasn't playing it and looking forward to getting back into it i think it's probably one of the best if not the best looking xbox exclusive title i mean i I, when it was originally an xbox exclusive i should say i don't think an xbox studio has put out anything that looks quite as good as senua's sacrifice yeah i probably agree with that and you know talking of pushing technology forward as well the way that they use that motion capture it obviously predates both red dead redemption and death stranding so in terms of advanced mocap in a video game i think that they did that astoundingly well as well yeah i couldn't agree more with that point Senua's facials, like her eyes, powerful stuff. Especially the fact that they're kind of highlighted by the thick blue paint across her face as well. They really stand out. It's it's really well done. I can't express enough how well I think that the actress did with that. Yeah, Melina Jurgens did a, a great job in performing that role. She also has quite distinct facial features, which I think really helped to highlight yeah. some of the character features of Senua, and obviously complemented by a really, really good acting and voice performance as well. It all tied it together so well. I'm honestly having a hard time believing that she's got no previous acting credits. I'm staggered by that. But no, interesting conclusions, man. Uh, I agree with some of your points. I personally found the combat to be really good in patches. Sorry to keep rubbing it in. The block parry mechanic was incredibly satisfying <laughs> when you got it right. I got to go back and it, play it, it just to do that. Even if it's just to go back to yeah. a, a combat heavy chapter and just try it. Just just go fight Val Ravin using block. Trust me, you'll have a great time. But for the most part, and again, I mentioned this briefly earlier, I think I went into this thinking it was going to be more of a combat game than it actually is, which might have impacted my thoughts here. But whilst the combat had some great elements, I did find it a bit clunky, a bit slow. The AI was terrible. I've got, I've just got to say it. When there's groups of enemies, they could sometimes just be like old school Assassin's Creed. One or two will attack you while the other three stand back. Not, not great. There were also some issues with not invisible walls as such, but if you're sort of by a corner or by a wall and you try and dodge around an enemy, you're animation will just stop dead you still dodged i think but it just it was just a bit like jarring um i felt that the puzzle sections as we've mentioned were nice initially but then i did find them they got stale very quickly not helped by the fact that the game is quite slow paced for the most part the story was excellent mm, um mm. i didn't pick up quite as much on the mental health side of it as you did because obviously i've got a background in that from your old jobs and things like that and also you just know more about it from your interest it was a bit of a shame this because the story was so great and i really liked the ending the ending was really satisfying but i do come away feeling that this game as i've said it's not good but it's it's not bad it's not good i, I found it a very enjoyable experience to play through very happy that i got all the lore stones so it's 100 percented um 
because frankly, I don't think I'll ever play this again. I don't think there's much replay value once you've done it. And it wasn't fun enough for me to go back and want to experience it again. Will I pick up Senua 2 as a result of this? Doesn't sound particularly likely. But no. honestly, I'm not exactly <laughs> I'm not exactly going to be rushing out to go get it on release or anything like that. Six out of ten for me, probably. Better than average, but not great fine yeah i mean i guess if i had to assign it a numerical value i'd be a lot more generous and probably going for like a, a solid eight eight maybe eight and a half out of ten sort of thing it's it's still a ways off being a nine out of ten game just given that uh you know as we've said multiple times now during this if those mechanics were stretched out over a longer period of game it wouldn't have uh, stood the test of time i'm being a little harsh maybe but it's because of my own perspective rather than quality of the game i think the studio did a great job so shout out to ninja theory yeah they knocked out the park uh, with this just not my game unfortunately there's just one last thing that i kind of want to address before we round this whole section off which is that my interpretation of this game was that almost 99 if not 100 percent of the peril in this game is actually not real it doesn't exist and these are all uh, hallucinations or psychotic delusions of Senua. As we touched on a little bit earlier, when you're walking through those darkness sections, we actually find out that that darkness doesn't even exist because when she comes out of it, the room just doesn't suddenly light up with fires. It's just light. In some cases, yeah. it's just daytime. And I'm, I'm willing to bet that if it stretches to that far when she can convince yourself she's in what looks like a dark cellar, despite actually being outside in the daytime, then I think that a lot of the enemies, if not all of the enemies that she fights in the game, certainly the gods and the large majority of the demonic Northmen as well. I mean, there is an argument to say that she could perhaps have been fighting some real Northmen in there and having delusions that they were demonic ones. But I actually tend to think that all of those were just pure psychotic delusions and at no point was she ever under attack. She is simply someone having a severe psychotic meltdown, has isolated herself in the woods and is absolutely just going through the motions of it. And having all of these Norse tales told to her by Droof has just completely compounded the problem and given given her all of these things to be afraid of and to invent as part of her mind. And to be fair, whenever she does sort of see slash hallucinate Druth, he's always sort of backing up those claims until she gains a bit more power over the situation. Then he starts becoming a bit more, don't fall into the same trap with my darkness, you can beat it sort of thing. So I can buy that. I didn't pick it up when I was playing it, but having spoken to you about it a little bit before and during the pod, I can see that. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting thing to speculate on. And I'd be really interested to know uh, if to me, Mantle, Tony Ades has actually revealed his own take on Senua's story in some sort of interview, or whether he's just left that up to speculation. And hey, if you've got some strong feelings on it, listeners, why not drop us a little comment or DM us on Twitter? Let us know your thoughts. Yeah, absolutely. We'd love to hear from you. Okay, man, with that, we've come to the end of Completionist's Corner. It's time to lay out the socials before closing off another episode. You can, as always, find the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much anywhere else you get your podcasts by searching for Total Pod Mode. We also post regular video content of our playthroughs, stream highlights, as well as the podcast on our YouTube channel, Total Pod Mode. You can also find us on Twitter by searching for at Total Pod Mode, or one word. And whilst you're there, you can find me at Mr. Bames, and I'm also on Twitch under twitch.tv forward slash Mr. Bames underscore TPM. And you can find me at Hoodafunk on Twitter, and I'm also on Twitch under twitch.tv forward slash Hoodafunk. 
With all of that said, James, a humble request to our listeners to please make sure to drop us a review, drop us five stars on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, subscribe to our various social media platforms as we've just laid out. We're really trying to boost the podcast and slowly grow over time, and we can only do that with your support. Thanks very much, everyone, and we'll see you next week. Until then, goodbye.